Ari, please grace us with the ad read and tell us a little bit about Michael Knopf. Michael Knopf is the man, not just because he believes in this podcast and loves listening to every episode from start to finish and has even doubled down and listened to a couple more than once. Can we test him? Michael Knopf is the man because he's a, a fantastic mortgage broker and he works at an awesome, awesome place, Draper and Craper, Draper of Craper. <laughs> we say it right. Draper and Kramer. Is that what it is? Draper and Kramer? I think you should know by now. Oh, my God. Why does it sound so funny in my head now? Because i said it so many times. Draper and Kramer Mortgage Corp. Michael Knopf. Give him a call. If you're looking for a house, you're not looking for a house, whatever. Any of your mortgage needs. 847-239-7804. Again, that's 847-239-7804. Hey, mom, what's up? Really, what I really want to know is how supportive Maka is of this podcast venture. Believe it or not, you're going to be really excited about this, but uh, we are... Probably not, if you and I are calling me about something. Okay. <laughs> well, that went well. <laughs> I think she hung up. <laughs> you guys are so bored, seriously. <laughs> Are you gonna listen to it? Well, I don't know. I so I don't listen to things that really relate to my life. <laughs> wow, that that hurts. Oh, that that's that is great. Right in the gut. <clears throat> I mean, you guys have nothing better to do with your time. I figured it's about time you do something. Now you're obviously very bored because you have no idea if it was gonna actually be happening. <laughs> We're calling it 990 Talk. A lot of people out there think that those who can't make profit work in nonprofit. And that may or may not be true. You know, we're just like two dudes in, in a world that most people are focused on chasing every dollar. We kind of just want to show people that there's a niche for guys like us. In the meantime, we're out to at least talk about what it means to work in nonprofit. You know, just like changing the world is more important. So. Do me and you can do you. But I'm going to do what I love, do what I love. I'm going to do me and you can do you. And here we are in the studio. Ari Strulowitz, Strulowitz-Bogopolsky, 990 Talk, coming at you with a great episode ahead of you, ahead of us, and an awesome interview. Ahead of, I'm ahead of you right now. You're facing me. Yeah, whatever. I just meant like ahead. A great episode ahead. Great episode ahead of, ahead. You yeah, done? Yeah. You I'm, done? I had trouble with my words today. So uh, Craper, I, I, Craper. I, was, uh, I was out of town over the weekend. I went to my sister. Um, I had a bad flying experience both ways and I'm not sure what was worse. The way out, we had one of those taxi away from the gate and then taxi back to the gate. Cause like some engine light went on, they had to fix. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to put a little marker there cause I want to make a comment on that, but go for it. Yeah. Um, which wasn't the end of the world. Um, I just feel like the, when, you know, when the feeling of having to taxi back to the gate and like, then like you have like, are we going to deplane now? Like that goes through your head. It's awful. It's the worst. Um, so we were there for about an hour till we, it was like an hour delay, which was not. Also, uh, you know, I was going to these coasts. The whole flight itself was like an hour and a half. So like the delay was like as long as the flight. That's awful. And then on the way back, um, you know, everything was going smoothly. The whole airport process. They tell us before we leave, it's going to be great, guys. We're going to land in half hour before. We get out of the gate early. We finally land in the airport. And then there was no gate ready for 
like an hour, which is even an, a half hour after. Oh man, which is even like a half hour after like we were supposed to be there. So I'm not, I'm not sure what, what which is worse. What airline was this? Southwest. I'm a oh. big Southwest guy. Everyone knows. Oh, that's right. You Everyone flew knows. out of Midway, so you added time there because you had to drive all the way to Midway. Excuse me, there's no traffic. Everyone knows that. I'm still added Everyone time. knows. Everybody knows. Stop everybody. I'm a very big advocate about Midway being a better airport experience if you go there at the right hour of the day. A few people know that you're a big Midway I'm pretty guy, vocal about it's it. it's fine. It's not your fault. You're not from Chicago, so you don't know any better. I'm actually flying out of O'Hare in two weeks, so. Okay, well, I'm sure that'll be a better experience. It's I doubt much it. It's better be a lit zoo. airport. It's going to be a zoo. Um, I have a rule that I've, I, again, I'm, it could be completely anecdotal based on my experience, but I have a rule. If ever you're on an airplane and they say to you, you have the option to deplane, you know, we're going to be taking off in another 30 minutes or an hour, two hours or some sort of detail that whatever we need to work out. And you have the option of getting off the plane now. You always take it. That is my rule. I've never um, been in that scenario. I, so. I've been in that scenario multiple times, Awful. maybe because I fly out of O'Hare. I've been in that. And you always take it because nine out of ten times, that plane is not taking off. And that's my rule. And as soon as it happens, I'm off the plane trying to get on a different flight almost every single time. What? If they were going to take off in 45 minutes, they're not letting you get off the plane. They're making you sit on the plane. So they say, oh, okay, we're, 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 we should be taking, we just, uh, we're going to be taking off in an hour. If we're you want, sorry you about the inconvenience, blah, 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 And blah. you'll be able to get back on. Or You get off. You just get off. Now, in the contrary, or the a, a different scenario is when you're stuck on the plane and, like, you're not at a gate and you know you're headed back to the gate or like that stuff is the absolute worst. And then when you're with your kids. No, it's not. There's nothing. It's, it's horrible. The, it's the worseness horrible. is magnified. You got to move on. You got to make okay, me sick anyway, to my stomach. So um, I mentioned I was by my sister for the weekend and, uh, and uh, you know, I was getting ready um, for Shabbat, if you will. And uh, I take out my suit and there's no suit pants, which was a very defeating feeling, which, uh, which leads us to the Mount Trashmore of the, of the worst things to forget. Worst things to forget. You want to go first? Sure. Uh, okay, so my my number one, because I knew this was motivated by your travel, so my head went right to travel, one of the worst things to forget, and um, I've kind of been in this situation, but I've seen other people in this situation, is when flying internationally and showing up at the airport and realizing you forgot your passport. Yeah, it's annoying. That's not annoying. That's that's horrible. So you can't. I mean, you can't fly without your passport. So do you go back home and get it, or do you try to get another flight? Like depends how much time. When you realized every situation is a little bit different. I did have one time where I was flying to a friend's wedding in Toronto, and it was the oh, night. Oh, so that's a good point before. because if you're going to Israel or you're going to Europe, you know you need your passport. If you're going to Toronto, I could see why you'd forget. Yeah, because you're like, oh, it's a domestic flight. And then the night before, I was already packed. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and my we were flying as a family. So I was meeting my parents at the airport. My mother's like, oh, don't forget your passport. I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll just go get it out of that drawer that I always keep it in. And bam, it wasn't there. And I panicked. Where was it? Um, it was, I don't care. Number two. Okay. Well, that's kind of a funny story, actually. For another time. I put a suit on for jury. For I had to go. I had to fight a ticket in court. A couple of weeks before that. So like if you put on a suit, it's going to like. Yeah. 
That's a thing. I don't want to talk about your your your, your driving record anymore. Sorry, I'm just gone. That was years ago, though. Great. Okay. Yes. Whatever. Me I left too. it in the pack of the suit. Well, in case they like um, deported you. <laughs> what were you worried about? Like, why did I bring it? Yeah. I just wasn't sure what ID was good enough to bring. To that's a great question. I'm not sure why I brought my passport. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I brought my passport. Okay, my number two for worst things to forget. I know this is a little bit cliche, and I'm sure it's a toss-up, um, but I have. I, I don't think we talk about things to forget and not mention this, and that would be um, your wife's birthday. It's a layup. Can't forget that. You can't. You can't. I, some when people, I say it's a layup, it's a layup for the Mount Trashmore of worst things to forget. Because yeah, you course. can't. You, it's just. It's a disaster. It's very hard. To, how long do you think it takes to? Like, what do you think? What do you have to do to recover from that? So I'll be honest. I don't have trouble forgetting my wife's birthday. So I've never had that issue. I don't. It's usually around the beginning of camp. I just, I have, I've gotten close to forgetting it. The problem is not forgetting it, by the way. It's remembering it two weeks early to get a gift. Right. Just to be clear. I knew, I know it's her birthday. I just am usually buying a gift like the day of or the day before. It's um, always good to have a anniversary you can count on with a good gift idea. Anniversaries are a little, I find a little bit harder. Yes. But the fallout from forgetting an anniversary is not as bad as forgetting a birthday. So your spouse's birthday or a wedding anniversary, anything like that, those that's really the worst thing to forget. I um I have an interesting, I guess, uh, tidbit just to add to that. So um, my wife and I have this thing that like we only write a card for one um, because it's just too much to keep writing cards, especially because like our birthdays are at the end of the year and our anniversary is like in the same like two-month period. So we don't want to get too involved in the cards. So one time we made this thing that like we're only going to write cards for a birthday and not for anniversary, and I forgot which one was the, the thing. So that's that's not good. It's like, oh, you didn't give me a card. It's like, oh, I thought we don't give cards. Like, no, that's that's you don't give cards for anniversary, so you have to be very careful about that. Anyway, number one for me. This isn't like the end of the world, but it's brutal when it happens. Um, if you're in the shower and you forgot a towel. Oh man, that's a good one. It's rough. That's a good one. Again, it's not like the end of the world, but like, no. you don't want to be that guy where you're like, you're jumping around, <laughs> dripping wet across your house, right. trying to get to the, the towel closet. I mean, I personally hate a wet bathroom floor, but maybe some people don't. So I guess if you don't, you don't care to have to go grab a towel, but yeah, that's a huge bug out. My kids like fight with me now. Like when I take them out of the shower, the bath, like I try to explain to them that you're supposed to dry off in the shower slash bath. Like they're very adamant that they have to like dry off in the room and it's just, it's just wet everywhere. Yeah. So okay, really stinky one. when you forget, um, when you forget a towel, um, in the shower. Number two, uh, forgetting, uh, your, your password login and specifically when it's your Apple login. Because they're so annoying about it. That's a very difficult one to uh, to get through. They're so annoying. It takes like yeah. three days. The other, like the other, you know, like a month ago, I got my wife an Apple Watch. It was on sale, and like she didn't like know her login, and like it took me like a week to connect it to her phone. It was so annoying. Yeah, I it was so that. annoying. Like, you don't have to like be more restrictive, you know, than like, you know, like the CIA. Okay. It's, yeah, that's pretty rough. That's pretty rough. That's a good one. Um. Are we back to me now for my three, four? Yeah. Okay, so the number three, I'm going to have to give a little bit of an education to some of our listeners out there. If you don't play ice hockey, okay. the worst thing to forget ever um, for all you ice hockey players is you, you get into the locker room, uh, your games, and the getting dressed for a hockey game, is uh, it takes a lot of time. I you take inventory to, before and after every you time. You have to take, you have to log that huge bag. 
this doesn't happen often, and you only really make this mistake once every few years if you make it at all. Um, but if you dry out, so basically you have this huge bag of all this hockey equipment, skates, pads, 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 your 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 helmet, your gloves, your everything, and it gets gross and sweaty, and you have to air it out. So you get home, you empty out your bag, you space it all out, and then like two, three days later, you're getting back on the ice. It's late at night. You like run out there to the garage or your basement, wherever it is. You try to just stuff everything in the bag. You run out to your car. You got to drive all the way to the game. You get there. You only have some, okay, I'm, I'm just, this is the, it's important education. You get there and you're about to get dressed and you know, you're like a little bit late and you can't, your cup is not in there. <laughs> okay. okay. And I, mean, I, want, listen, I think that you could have just said forgetting your cup and no. like people will be like, yeah, that, you probably don't want to forget that. No, because there's one part about the cup that, that people don't know. I've been in many a locker rooms where people have said, oh man, I don't have my cup. Does anyone have an extra cup? Okay, so borrowing a <laughs> cup, first of all, is nasty. Yeah. But that's not really the, the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is sometimes you're left to make a decision. Am I missing the game? Am I going home? Or is there something else for me to do? I mean, um, I guess there's three choices. Miss the game, play without a cup, borrow a cup. Right. So, But the play without a cup option is a very complicated option. I've seen people stuff things down into their <laughs> hockey pants. <laughs> Um, and ultimately it's just a huge risk and you have to ask yourself, it depends what and kind of wife. game, it depends what kind of game you're playing. If it's a super, you know, competitive game, less competitive game with checking, without checking, you know, are people taking hard slap shots and whatnot? Forgetting a cup is a horrible, horrible thing to forget. Um, number four, make it quick. Number four. Uh, I forgot it. Is it, is, is number four forgetting your fourth thing on the Mount Rushmore? Sure is. That's my joke, bam. I got the joke. That's good. That's my number four. All right, go. Three, okay. four. <sighs> number three for me, going back to you know how we got into this, is I guess forgetting any article, clo- the, the article of clothes that you needed for the event that you traveled for. If you're flying for a wedding, you're flying for a weekend, and you forget something that you specifically needed for that like trip. Like you rented a tuxedo, let's say, and you left you it at home, it. and you flew across the country for a wedding, and you forgot it. Yeah, that, that's a bad one. Yeah, I mean, again, obviously, if you forget a tie, you could borrow that. You forget a pair of shoes. But, like, you forget your pants. You, you can't borrow pants because, you, you you know, like, you know, you know, I was, like, I was wearing, like, non-matching pants with, like, that didn't match the suit jacket that I had. Also, you're going to ask me, like, how I for, had the jacket but not the pants is because the pants were in the cleaners and I forgot to take them out of the plastic and put them in the suit bag. Oh, you, you will wash suit pants without the suit jacket? I mean, yeah, wash. Because, You'll yeah. send pants? Absolutely, because... Oh, that's a mistake. I only... Sorry, I wear okay. the pants over the course of the day more than yeah, I wear the jacket. Okay. That's okay. So that's a mistake, by the way. Okay, that's fair. You're saying I might as well just wash. Or the jacket. as soon as it comes back, you you, you connect them. You put them back together. Yeah, because that's like annoying. But reunited. So um, so I, I was wearing just like this suit jacket, which was like a, had like a pattern and like plain pants, and I basically look like the bar mitzvah kid from the seventies. Okay, it's a style at yeah. least. Yeah, but I, I wasn't. I wasn't. Style. I wasn't confident enough to to own it. What's your number four? My number four for me, and this doesn't happen that often, but it's annoying because like you get in your car, you start driving and you're like, wait, where's my coffee? And then you remember that you left it on the hood of your car. Oh, great one. Yes. Forgetting the coffee on top of the car. Yeah. That's, I hate that. Cause not only is your car dirty, you don't have your coffee <laughs> you anymore. You don't have your coffee. I was going to say the other way around. Not only do you not have your coffee, but your car's dirty. Yeah. That stinks. Well, I would, I, would, I think the fact that you don't have your coffee is the more important part. Right. Not only do you not have your coffee, which is horrible, but you also you have a dirty roof of your car. Yeah, so 
That doesn't happen too often, but when it does, it's it's really annoying. And yeah. like, oh, so like you pull away, you're like, oh, what was that noise? And I'm like, <laughs> and then like, <laughs> and then like five minutes later, you reach for your coffee. You're like, wait, where's my coffee? Like, oh, remember that noise I heard on the top of the car? That must have been my coffee. Yeah. So. <laughs> the worst. Yep. All right, that's yep. a good one. Okay. So uh, interview. Interview today. Today we have uh, joining us later is uh, Steve Sarowitz. Steve Sarowitz, uh, he's a local guy from Illinois, from Chicago, from Highland Park. And uh, he is the founder and CEO of Paylocity, among other things. And uh, he is... Uh, successful. Successful. But more importantly, he's probably one of the most generous people in the whole city. And um, I'm looking forward to, you know, speak to him about, yeah, I guess, you know, philanthropy in general. And is he going to talk about how successful he is? I think he's pretty humble. I don't think he's going to talk about that too much but you know i think you know i know he's passionate about a lot of things and i'm sure we'll get we'll get some good some sound bites from him he was featured in in crane crane business right yeah you can google him i don't want to get too much into the numbers but if you google him all the information is there you're saying the numbers are big they're big and they also start with a b oh i like it yeah anyway so uh, we're excited about that we'll get his take on you know foundational work in general philanthropy getting involved um, and what drives, I think what drives giving is, is like a few of the questions I want to ask him about. Yeah. So we're excited about that. And, uh, and here we go. Okay. So we now welcome to the show all the way from Highland Park. Born in Kingston, New York, raised in Homewood, Illinois, for the most part. And now I've lived in Highland Park since 1996. The latest Illinoisian to sign the giving pledge. Founder and chairman of Paylocity, Steve Sarowitz. I, I have not signed the giving pledge. Oh, I will have to cut that part out. Yes. I, I thought I read online that you did. I never, never, never have signed the give, giving pledge. Um, I um, have, I'm going to do what the giving pledge says to do, but my wife doesn't want to sign it. I would have signed it years ago, but uh, we're going to give away uh, over half our wealth, which is what the giving pledge says to do. Okay, well, I guess that's that's probably more important than your than your signature is actually doing yeah. the uh, the giving. So, I think well, I think we We've should been doing we should give him credit for it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's basically making the pledge, just not a signature. Correct. Well, yeah. For some reason, my wife doesn't want to do it. So I she has her reasons. I don't want to go into them, but uh, she didn't want to sign the giving pledge. That's fine with me as long as we give away our money. I don't care. Okay. That's actually almost admirable. In other words, you plan on, on giving away the money and, and not needing the fanfare around it. So, That's pretty much what my wife thinks. Okay. okay. I would agree. Okay. Anyway, so Steve, uh, um, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, if you don't mind, can you just uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about your professional background first and, you know, and the growth of Paylocity, uh, et cetera, and you know, how you got into that? So I, uh, I was a monumental failure the first 10 years of my career. Uh, you might say I had a net worth of zero at the age of 29. Uh, Same. I, I, uh, how old are you now? I'm 28. I'll be, I'll get, but I'll get there in about five months. <laughs> so there's hope. There's hope. Um, I was, I got into involved in entrepreneurship in college, and I, uh, my first ventures, I, got, I think I got a thousand dollars when I graduated school, and I called up my parents six months later. I'd started a few ventures. I had a painting company. I did it over a couple summers. I did food fairs. And I went around the country selling Pope USA Tour t-shirts right after I graduated college. So I called up my parents in the fall and said, you know that $1,000 that you gave me for graduation? That's gone. Hmm. And I've lost 1500 more besides. So you need to 
give me a, a loan so I can get out of debt. And they said no. And I, uh, they were very worried though, because they were afraid I was going to be suicidal or something, you know, cause I was, I was in debt. I, I didn't really care. I was a happy go lucky kid. And so I'd already gone to a local restaurant owner that I knew from one of the food fairs and arranged that I was going to be an assistant manager and he was going to garnish my wages. But my parents called back afraid I was going to jump out of the window, forgetting that I was living on the first floor and they, they offered to give me the loan. So I came back to Chicago and my first job was selling copiers. And so I did that, uh, pushing copiers around the streets of Chicago in the 80s. I did that for uh, less than a year, and I did some collegiate marketing. And my third job uh, was working for a payroll company called Robert F. White. And Robert F. White um, was, at that time, the leading independent payroll company in the United States. And I didn't know much about it, but I went and took the job. And... Um, so I took the job. I did very well at Robert F. White. It's the first time I excelled at a job and uh, ended up being the second leading salesperson in the country. And I saved a little bit of money, which I immediately plowed into a Chinese restaurant. And I lost all my money, plus a little bit of money besides. Um, worked 90 hours a week to do that. Uh, it was a Chinese food delivery restaurant called Ying Yang's Orient Express. Um, after selling the restaurant, I got back eventually into the payroll business in 1994 and never left. I ended up being a sales manager. And in 1997, I started Paylocity. So I didn't have much money. Like I said, I was completely broke. At 97, I was 31. So I'd managed to save up just enough money to start Paylocity. Started it with three employees in, in a basement office and uh, have built it up a little bit since then. A little bit. How much is a little bit? You can Google uh, it. You can Google it, yeah. Uh, well, the company, let's see. I don't know what our, I think the company's worth about $7 billion now on the stock market. Yeah, that's a little bit, I'd say. Yeah, I think so. It's a fair amount. Uh, we are worth $8 billion, just just under $8 billion as of right now. I guess yesterday was a good day. Steve, yeah, do, well, do you, or I haven't looked at the stock in a little while. <laughs> Steve, do you have a soft spot for Chinese food? I like Chinese food. Um, I like Chinese food. Um, I can still cook it. I only cook it occasionally. But no, I, I, I generally like to eat healthy. Actually, this breakfast I just got delivered is um, a rice cake with avocado, a turkey sausage, and blueberries. I've, I'm on this, this new diet. Uh, I've given up basically almost all processed food. So I'm not doing any, like almost no sugar um, and almost no carbs. Well, you look good. I'll say that. Thank you for, for an old man. Listen, you know. Steve, did you always want to be an entrepreneur or was that something that kind of uh, came to you in your college years? In my college years. I, I was not an entrepreneur at all in high school. And in my college years, my friend took me to an entrepreneur's class, actually an entrepreneur club. And the president was a pretty blonde girl. And again, I was a college kid. That was good enough for me. Mm -hmm. Pretty blonde girl president. I think, uh, I think I'll stay. And my first venture was this food fair called Taste on the South Quad. We, uh, we had about, I think about five or 10,000 people went to it. We had about 40 restaurants. It was actually a really big success. So I learned a lot um, from that first venture. And I was hooked ever since after that. Now, you mentioned that there were a couple, I guess, projects that you got yourself into that weren't necessarily wildly successful. 
Um, what have you? What did you learn from those early experiences as far as sort of choosing which ventures to go into and and which to steer clear of? Don't overextend yourself. I'm still learning that lesson. Um, don't take too many risks. Um, probably ready aim fire is better is better than ready fire aim. I'm still learning that one too as an entrepreneur. That's my life. Um, that's like my life. You know, mantra. I don't know. I think we should think that over. <laughs> Yeah, entrepreneurs are, 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 we just tend to be more the ready firing, hire good people. So I, um, I also learned how to delegate when I owned a Chinese restaurant. I was to say I was an awful manager was probably a huge overstatement of my managerial abilities at that time in my mid twenties. <laughs> I, um, I would literally push people out of the way. I'm six foot six too. So I'd literally push people out of the way to go cook Chinese food or, or deliver because they couldn't do it. I, I was always doing it better. They couldn't do it good enough, which is, I mean, I apologize to anybody I ever managed back then because that's not the way to manage people. I learned eventually how to delegate and always try to find someone better than yourself. Um, that was one of my early mistakes is, is not learning how to delegate. Um, that's probably a big one. And then just uh, not thinking before I acted, you know, not really planning things out learning on the job. Steve, what do you find most to be like the biggest um, obstacle for people when it comes to delegating? What are usually the things that keep one from delegating well? You need to know your own weaknesses. One of the things I've seen among small business owners, the ones who are less successful, is they think they can do everything well. And that's a that's the kiss of death if you have a small business and you think you can do everything well. There's always something you don't do well. In my case, I eventually delegated the whole thing away. So I just go to four board meetings a year with Paylossity because I found people who are better than me at everything. Did you ever consider basketball? Did you ever if play? You ever watch me, if you ever watch me shoot a basketball, I still play basketball. And I still play just as poorly as I did when I was in my 20s. I'm, I'm in great shape for... I'll be 55 this year. I'm in great shape. I can run. Um, I I can run three miles in about 21 minutes still, which wow. is pretty good for That's a guy good. my age. But, but but I can't shoot. I mean, literally can't hit the side of the barn. If I make a layoff, they chair. It's I'm okay. I'm okay at defense, but don't ask me to shoot a basketball. Can you still dunk? I mean, you're six foot six and you're in good shape. Um, no, that jumping ability, which wasn't great in my 20s is much worse now. I could I could get over the rim when I was in my 20s. I can't touch the rim anymore, which is sad. Okay, anyway, just before we um, transition to talking about, you know, philanthropy and the good stuff, I just have one question before that. Was there like a moment in the growth of Paylocity when you're like, you're like we, this is going to be big time? Like, was there like one like moment or time you could pinpoint in which you, you know, you, you, you thought everything was going to change? Yeah. Um, when I brought in Steve Beauchamp and we really laid out our plan to go national, that's when I knew it was going to change. Um, when we brought out our software and we transitioned to our own product, I knew that was going to be big. And so it kind of, it, when we started winning awards, which was, so there were different things. So if you, if you go with the first sea change, it's when we made the Inc 500 and we were also named the independent payroll service bureau of the year by our industry association in 2003, 2004, that happened. We, we won that two straight years and we made the Inc 500 two straight years. So I knew the company was poised for growth. The next big thing which happened 
was moving over to our new new software a few years later, and then hiring Steve Beauchamp, and all of those things uh, changed the company for the better. Okay. So um, most people don't know this, and maybe you don't want people to know this, but you have a you have a foundation called the the Julian Grace Foundation. So um, you know, as you as you got like more serious about philosophy about philanthropy, I'm sorry. Um, philosophy is probably a better thing because I'm more serious about <laughs> philosophy and, and theology than that's philanthropy. A, that's true, but we're, this is a nonprofit podcast, so we, when we start our philosophy podcast, we'll have to we'll revisit that. But um, is there like a, a specific you know philanthropic philosophy that you have, or, or what you know what interests you? Um, and, and you know, I guess as you were as you were growing your business and your wealth, that you that you said to yourself, this is something that I want to support. This is something that I want to um, change the world with. Well. I think your faith drives everything in your life, and it should definitely drive your philanthropy. So, so for me, it's the oneness of humanity. I'm a Baha'i, so everything the Baha'i faith is is about the oneness of humanity. So get rid of racism, sexism, nationalism, religious prejudice. And I like to go to the core problems in the world. The core problems in the world are not that we have poor people. We have poor people because we have racism. We have poor people because we have sexism, because we have nationalism, because we have religious prejudice. And so the types of philanthropy we do are about education. And to some extent, spiritual education. When you're engaging with a potential organization or they're engaging with the the foundation, what types of things are you looking for them to sort of say or to share? Or what goals are you particularly looking to invest in it depends on the organization because we have we we support julian grace supports over 50 different organizations by the way we don't take unsolicited requests so just in case anyone wants to call us uh, that's for all the listeners out there (laughs) um but for example we support foster children we support orphans we support we have a a couple centers we built uh, one in israel actually in akko israel for jews and arabs another one on the west side of chicago we're, we want to know what the we want to know what the organization does. Does it? What is it? What's its goals? How does it meet its goals? How is it run? You know, we 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 are very careful to invest in organizations that are, are well run fiscally, much more so now than we were five years ago, six years ago, when we were starting this. Um. We, so we want to know that the organization is sustainable. We want to know that it's that it's doing what it says it's doing. And from my perspective, I'm very, very interested in organizations. For example, racism is a big topic right now. I'm extremely interested in organizations that are helping um, to fight racism. So when you say, do you you mean like investing in organizations that specifically combat racism or just are you looking to invest and and I guess and strengthen you know, organizations that service minorities per se. What's the what's the focus? Or um, both. Both. We do both, and we also do impact investing. So, we uh, we've committed uh, twenty million dollars in the city of Chicago, and actually a lot more because we do it in multiple different ways um, to invest in in black and brown owned businesses. So, okay. we kind of have a holistic principle, a philosophy that we ask all of our nonprofits. You mentioned, you know, do they not only do they service minorities? We track, um, do they have minorities in their on their board? Um, do they are there black and brown people, in, you know, basically in their staff, their board, and their service? So, 
we want to be consistent in everything we do. And then we have organizations on top of that type of mindset. We have organizations um, that are looking to specifically address racism. And I'm doing a lot more of that. I've been doing it all along. The center we built on the west side of Chicago was really to address that in many ways. And uh, I've been, we've been doing it for the whole time we've been doing philanthropy, but I, I think we're stepping it up even more so with, with what's going on in the world. I think we're at a critical moment. I think those of us who have the resources must stand. And I am a, I am a real strong proponent of the idea that Black Lives Matter, not necessarily the movement. There's some things the movement has done, particularly it's embr- the movement's embrace of BDS. I don't approve of mm-hmm. I'm, I'm uh, I don't believe in hatred. I don't believe that you that you overcome uh, hatred with hatred, as Martin Luther King says. You need love to overcome to overcome hate. And so I don't like the idea that that the Black Lives Matter movement has embraced an extremely hateful organization um, in BDS. Um, and I don't care who you hate. I don't like hate. You know, whether you're hating the Palestinians or hating the Israelis, I don't want to. I would never embrace a hate an organization that 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 embraces hate anyway, but but I'm a very, very strong proponent of the fact that Black Lives Matter, the fact that there's been endemic racism. I'm, I'm against the endemic racism which this country has suffered from for over 400 years. And so I, for, for example, just a little thing we did, we just uh, we just did a talk in Highland Park sponsored uh, a woman named Dr. Joy DeGruy and we had the head of the chief of police, uh, the head of equity at the high school, a local rabbi, and a local social worker who does a lot of race work, having a conversation about race in our neighborhood. And I think a lot of it is education. A lot of it is education and and pointing out to people that, hey, this is not a level playing field. It has not been a level playing field for a long time. And and then talking about what we can do to overcome it. Can you talk a little bit more about the impact of this West Side Center that you you started? So the West Side Center is called Shycat, and we started it in I called up uh, Bill Strickland in 2014, shortly, right as Paylocity was going public. And I'd seen him speak about five or six years earlier. And I was really inspired by him. And I said, I went up to him afterwards and said, if I ever get some money, I'm going to give you a call. So I called him up about five or six years later, and he had no idea who I was, and that I want to build this center on the west side. And the reason why I wanted, and this is sad, I remember this, the reason why I wanted to build it was 22 people had been killed uh, the weekend before and the weekend before that, or twice shot, 22 people have been shot. Now it's over 100, so it's only gotten worse. And I wanted to do something for poor people in Chicago. I wanted to do something to help uplift communities. And so I went to Bill, and he was already working with people in the west side of Chicago in the Lawndale community. So um, we started talking, and we agreed to do the center. And uh, actually, along within about Six, five, six other conversations. He mentioned ACO Israel, which was actually very near. So we ended up building two centers for the price of one. ACO happens to be the spiritual center of the Baha'i faith. As a Baha'i, it was really interesting for me to build one there for Jews and Arabs. The one on the west side offers, um, Shaikat offers vocational training for adults, as does the one in Israel, and arts for children. And so the idea with the arts program is to take kids who aren't necessarily interested in school and get them into this after-school arts program. And what this does is it kind of gives them a, a spiritual uplifting, um, which Bill's successfully done in centers all around the country. And what happens is their graduation rate goes up. 
it's really interesting. It's like an indirect result. And then the vocational programs are really bridge programs for the adults in the community to uplift and uh, really get to wages, get to jobs where, where they've got a living wage and really help the community that way. So we've got dozens of people right now enrolled in our vocational training classes, and we want to continue to increase that. Got you. So specifically to the philanthropy, how involved are you in the decision making? I think that's a question that a lot of non non-for-profits want to know when it comes to these foundations, um, is how involved are those that have kind of are, are the main funders and those that have set it up? I'm very involved. My wife is even more involved. My wife runs the foundation day to day along with Allison Lopez, who we hired, who's got a master's degree from Stanford. We have a, a team of 20 people on our family office and foundation. So we have a lot of people helping us. Um, we have a chief investment officer, Jim Castleberry. He's really actively involved in the impact investing him and his team. Allison and her team are, are involved with Julian Grace. And then I've just expanded my own personal philanthropy. I have, I'm giving specifically um, this year a million dollars to Baha'i causes, which I tend to expand um, over the next few years. Um, my thought is uh, I want to specifically find the best Baha'i causes all around the world. There's not Baha'i faith is relatively new, relatively small. So I, so I'm actually I'm very involved and I'm extremely involved in that. I've just hired one person who's now vetting all these people have been coming to me for years and saying, would you give to this cause? She's now helping me vet that and give to the causes that I, I want to give to. Do you, are there other, I guess, prominent, you know, philanthropists that are, that are of the Baha'i faith that maybe you collaborate with? Um, well, well known. He's, he's not as much of a philanthropist, although he is a philanthropist. Uh, Rain Wilson from office fame is a oh. friend of mine. And yes, we've collaborated. Um, Justin Baldoni, uh, who's my business partner at Wayfair. He was on a show called Jane the Virgin, and he's an amazing director. Um, he directed a film last year called Five Feet Apart, and we have one coming out this year called Clouds. So Justin is a little bit well-known, and he does philanthropy as well. Um, I don't think there's a lot of well-known Baha'i philanthropists, but there's a lot of Baha'i philanthropists. I was going to say, because you know, the temples are certainly not, uh, they don't look like they're, they're, they look like they're, 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 they're cheap construction. Very nice. Well, yeah, but there's not that many temples. So if you look at, like, for example, all the Jewish temples, there's a lot of Jewish temples. Look, look what if you took all the money that went into all those Jewish temples and made one of them? Because there's only one Baha'i temple in all of North America. Right, and it's right here in Evanston. Yeah, yes, yeah. It so is. it's. I guess it's think about that. If you, I, I think there are, you know, so we're Orthodox. I think there's thir there's like 38 Orthodox uh, synagogues in, in in Chicago. I guess if you combine them into one, it'd be pretty sweet. It'd you know, my huge. sister just Orthodox, so. Yeah, she, I think she lives uh, She lives around the corner from me. So, yeah. Anyway. Steve, going back a little bit to the foundation. So I, I, I hope this question is not too forward, but do you like approve every dollar that is given out in some way, shape, or form? Or is it you kind of set up a system of decision-making and allocations and maybe you check in on it every once in a while? Our board approves every dollar that goes out. I'm on the board. What's interesting about our board is it's not just our family. So we've put together a diverse board, both racially, um, women and men, and it's mostly friends, but I don't always agree with everyone on the board. And so the board is encouraged to disagree with us. So what you'll notice with most family foundations, it's basically relatives. 
And also, I guess the I guess the, a lot of times the board on a family foundation is really just a sham board where just really one person calling the shots. That's actually really cool that you know there's yeah the real process. Very cool. In your experience, I guess in, in, in you know involved in philanthropy, is there is there anything that you maybe wish other philanthropists would would do more of or you know or, or get involved in? Especially like yeah. in your circle, in your in your inner circle. Mm-hmm. So I was at a meeting. I won't say which meeting because it was a private meeting. But I was at a meeting recently of some very prominent philanthropists. And afterwards, there was about seventy-five of us on the Zoom call, and they were talking about the crises that were going on. And they talked about COVID. You know, everyone knows we have a COVID crisis. And after about a half an hour of that. I said, you know, we have two crises going on. Has anyone thought about what they're doing about the racial problems in this country? Silence. And so I went through a little bit more. And we talked about it for maybe a minute or two. And then somebody went back to COVID and then went back to COVID. I think that, yes, a couple things. We have to do the difficult work. And I, I'm, I'm very loud about saying, we don't want to do band-aids. What I mean by a band-aid is we give to the poor, we give to the homeless, and we never ask, why are they homeless? Why are they poor? We need to get to the deep spiritual foundations of the problems, the education. We need to, we need to get to the oneness of humanity. And that is at the crux of everything that's happening that's wrong with the world today. Imagine, you know, you being as an Orthodox Jew, imagine if every Muslim a Jewish person in Israel embraced each other as brothers and sisters. Can you imagine that? What would, how much, how much better would Israel be? And how many more resources would Israel have? Israel's an amazing country in terms of its advances, but how many more resources would go towards the bettering of not just Israel, but the entire world with, with all this innovation, if Israel didn't have to put so much money into the military, how much better would it be if Iran and Israel were friends, like they were in the 70s. How much better would it be for the world? I'm just talking about religious things. How much better would it be in this country if there was really true racial harmony between the black and the white and the brown? You know, I I think that anyone who was fooling themselves into thinking this wasn't a big problem has to have their eyes opened over the last few months, no matter what side they're on of that. Hey, we have a real problem here. And... I would just go and say that it's kind of silly to blame it on the rioters because it didn't start with the rioters. I'm not advocating rioting. I'm a, I'm a law and order man. I like law and order. I don't think you should be smashing someone else's window. I don't think you should be stealing their, their merchandise. But anyone who thinks that's the start of the problem, really, I think they should go back to work and think a little harder and say, maybe there's a reason why people are angry. That, that's the core problem. Is there a country in the world that, that you think that does a better job of creating a racial harmony and infrastructure that maybe you, uh, that, that you've seen? I think there are some countries in Europe that do better. Um, you know, frankly, there's a lot of countries that, that talk like they do better, but there's ra- racism is a worldwide problem. It's a problem in India. It's a problem in China. It's a problem in the UK. It's a worldwide problem. They, like whitening. I don't know if you know this whitening, uh, formulas or things that you put on your skin are are huge sellers in China and India. So having light skin is uh, supposedly a good thing. 
I think it personally, I think it's completely irrelevant into the value of a person, but we act like it's not. And so I always say that I'll be colorblind as soon as the whole world is. As soon as as soon as my black friends are not looked upon as any as one iota less than me, I'll stop defending them. Because I won't have to anymore. But until that time happens, I will point out that yes, there is a difference because of color. It's a stupid difference. We're all we're all children of God. We're all the same color in God's eyes. You know, we're different colors, you know. That's the, the skin color is an accident of nature. In, in truth, you know, I'm not better or worse than someone because I'm darker or lighter, but our society acts like I am. And that really, I really want to change that. Why do you, I mean, you mentioned that you were on this call and then the Zoom call with these other philanthropists. Why do you think that this is, well, I guess, I mean, do you have any, do you have any qualms about trying to uh, influence their agenda? In other words, you know, philanthropists and no. everyone that's in the giving world oftentimes is, they're just motivated by what motivates them, um, and I imagine they kind of carry that over to their giving. You may have a different agenda. Do you ever find yourself sort of like butting heads with them on that? Well, I'm kind of independent, so I don't really butt heads with people, and I'm also a Baha'i, so I generally don't fight with people. I try to find commonality. Um, my way of, of trying to influence people is just saying, have you considered this and have you considered that? I'm not, I'm not one to usually get in someone's face and say, you better do it this way. I realize that people made their own money and they have every right to give it away any which way they can. One other comment I was going to make about philanthropy, and we've given money to, uh, my wife is on the board of DePaul, we've given a significant amount of money to DePaul, and I'm going to give some money to U of I. But the bulk of our money that we're giving away is really helping the poor. It's harder to do that work. It's harder to get involved in a community. You have to go. And that's the other thing is you have to, you can't just write a check and, and disappear. You can, but it's not going to be effective. You need to get involved and do the work in the community. Really, you have to monitor what's going on. You have to have the community have to say what's going on. That's a much more difficult type of philanthropy than just writing a check to a university or a hospital. You know, nothing, you know, hospitals need money, universities need money, but I would hope that a greater percentage of money in the future will go to helping the poor, will go to education, will go to things <clears throat> that, to me, will make society better on a larger scale uh, than take giving to a university that already has a billion dollar, uh, what's the word, endowment versus, you know, giving to somebody who literally doesn't have enough to eat. You mentioned, you know, I guess giving to, you know, like, uh, you know uh, higher education. Do you... What do you think is the future of higher education, you know, considering the, you know, especially the impact that COVID has had on, on universities and as an entrepreneur yourself, where maybe, you know, you're, you're not, you're not an attorney or a doctor where you didn't necessarily have to go to, you know, school. I mean, obviously I'm sure you benefited, but do you, do you, do you, do you look into the future regarding higher education and see maybe that's not um, where, where the, where the future will lie? Higher education is always going to be there, but it's going to have to change. Right now, higher education is too expensive. Yeah. So there's going to be a reckoning. I mean, how many people, what does it cost to go to Northwestern? 70000 a year? I mean, how many people can afford, I can afford 70000 a year, but you don't want to have only the billionaires sending their kids to college. Um, it would make, somehow we have to figure out how to make college cheaper for the average person because there's a huge student debt problem. And I think we have to rethink college. I mean, when I went to school, 
175 years ago. It's um, not good. You told you, you told us you're 55. That's not good math. No, you know I'm not that good at math. No. So when I graduated, <laughs> I graduated in '87. When I went to school in the '80s, uh, University of Illinois, including room and board, cost six thousand dollars. It's a little more than that today. It's in the '30s, I think, today. Was that per semester or for the year? For the, the entire year. year. Oh my God! What a time to be alive. <laughs> anyway, I could have gotten a summer job, and with with student loans and a summer job, paid for college. How many kids today could have a summer job at student loans and pay for college? Impossible. I'll oh, see. That doesn't make sense. So somewhere the, the costs of college have gotten out of line. And they have to figure it out. Uh, you mentioned before about how you kind of have to get involved in the uh, whichever organization you're investing in and, and, and you're contributing to. What are you looking for maybe a year later? In other words, once you've sort of engaged in a relationship with a, with a non-for-profit, um, are, are you laying out benchmarks? Are they detailing benchmarks? What, what kind of progress um, are you looking for? They're laying out the benchmarks. I'm looking to see that they, that they hit their benchmarks. If they said they're going to do X, they're going to do X. So they're going to, again, when we work with community, we want to know that the, you know, first of all, I don't go to a community and say, I'm going to do this for you. I kind of, I'm more, especially over time as I've learned, what do you need? So my goal with philanthropy is to find good organizations and support them, not to tell them what to do. So for example, one of the organizations we support is Tahare Justice Center. They help female refugees from all over the world. And I wouldn't go to Tahare and say, you, you have to do this or that. They do what they do. We give them money to do it. And then they tell us at the end of the year what they've done. We have another organization that supports foster children. Same thing. We don't tell them what to do. Sometimes we do. Um, my wife did something with the Sierra Club. She's on the board of Sierra Club where she encouraged them to start working more in the inner city. So sometimes we'll influence them that way. We do influence them to be more diverse in terms of their board and and staff and who they service. But in terms of their, you know, telling them what to do, that's not our job. Are there any like preconceived notions or I guess uh, stereotypes that people have about philanthropists that maybe, that are, or I should say that maybe nonprofits have about philanthropists that maybe you would want to change? We don't have unlimited money. What? You're not the only nonprofit that's asked me for money today. <laughs> um, How many calls do you get a day, roughly? Does the foundation get not that many because I'm relatively low profile? Okay, because I people remember I, I sometimes twice in a conversation our foundation is not accepting unsolicited bids. There you go. That's number two. That's number two. Um, but you but, can't uh, you can't say it anymore. That's your max. Well, you can. Could be. I could I could try three times if I need to. But I'm a little bit of a low lower profile person in general. You won't see my name in the news very much, relatively. The only reason I, I actually did my interview with Cranes last year. Right. was because they put me in three times without interviewing me. Mm. I called them up. I said, well, you, know, you keep putting my name in there. Maybe you should interview me because then you would actually get the real me. And they said, what do you mean? Well, I said, well, this is the real me. If you're interested, do an interview. And they were fascinated. Actually, the woman who interviewed us, she was kind of like almost blinking her eyes when she's like, that's really you. I said, she's like, I, I think he's for real. I think he really means these things. Wow. No, I, I don't want it. Like, you know, I don't want to die a rich man. I, I could care less. You know, my, I'm not a materialistic person. I drive a Prius. Um, I don't really have a lot of expensive habits. 
I buy Baha'i books and give them away. That's a few thousand dollars a year. Um, I don't golf. I run. I have my same old, I mean, basically, if you looked at all my habits, I could be very middle class and be very happy. We, we live in one house. We don't have a, a huge fancy. I mean, our house is nice, but it's not super fancy. We don't have any fancy cars. We don't have a vacation home. So we don't need a lot of things. And frankly, I could live on a lot less than we live on. So I'm not, uh, to me, being wealthy is not a huge thing. And, and the other thing is I don't want to ruin my kids. We have two children. We want them and they're great kids. And they, they know that they're going to make their own way in life. And so I don't, I don't think that rejoicing in being rich is, it makes any sense. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of an anti-materialist in that I think if you are so worried about the things you have in life, then you're probably thinking wrong. To me, ultimately, ultimate wealth is spiritual. It's not, and, and you guys are orthodox, so you, you know the Torah at all, the, the Tanakh, you know that that's what it says. It's not about me having, I mean, I'm going to die someday. Hopefully, you know, I'm 55 or almost 55. Hopefully it won't be tomorrow. But when that happens, I'm not going to take whatever I've accumulated with me. That's going to stay on this earth. The only thing I'm going to take with me is, is the good deeds I've done in this world. The you know, Have I developed honesty? Have I developed kindness? Have I developed mercy and compassion? So I'm working on those. I'm working on accumulating spiritual wealth. Okay, we're, we're almost at the, at the end here. We don't want to take up your whole day. Um, I just have, uh, I guess, one more question. Going back to the philanthropy, was there ever a time? You know, I'm sure that you have. You know, obviously, there's there's the gatekeepers. It's, you know, you know, for the foundation, etc. Was there ever a time when someone basically got a hold of you and like pitched you an idea, and you're like, you know what, I love that. We're going to do it. Yeah. Um, early on, people pitched me ideas. I don't have a lot of room now for that, but. Um, Peter Samuelson, who's also a movie producer, pitched me an idea about foster children several years ago, and we've been working with him for years. I'm trying to think of others that have been have pitched to us. It's definitely happened. I mean, we probably have a couple dozen different nonprofits that pitched us ideas that we ended up giving to. But for the most part, actually, a lot of our major nonprofits that we give to, we actually found them. That's like your Tom dream. That's like a dream come true for, for an organization. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> like, like Shycat, I found Bill Strickland. I mean, I saw him speak, but I was the one who said I want to give to that. Um, Tahare Justice, we found them. There's been several nonprofits that way. Our our goal is to help humanity, and we do we spread that out among people of different faiths, among different types of organizations. The whole idea, if you want to look at what we do, is we try to take people who don't have an equal chance and give them an equal chance. Gotcha. Okay, Steve, look, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And uh, My pleasure. And uh, I guess uh, keep changing the world. That's the, uh, the ultimate goal. So nice to, nice to talk to you guys. Um, if you ever want to talk again, Love it. And how do I see some of your other interviews? Where are they available? So uh, we are on uh, we're on the uh, the Apple Podcast app under 990 Talk. We're on Spotify, um, and uh, also um, after we uh, after the episode is ready, which uh, would probably be either today or tomorrow, I would imagine, um, I will send it to you. And also uh, once you're there, you could see some other stuff. So we had we had Dr. Nasser on from the Federation. That was a lot of fun. We had Mike Frazen, who I believe you know. Uh, yeah, Mike Frazen and I are friends, definitely. He was a lot of fun. 
Um, He's Nikki, a good guy. Nikki Scott was a cool one. We also we had this person, Nikki Scott. Nikki Scott is one of the international um, directors of the Rotary Club. She lives mm-hmm. in England. She was uh, she was fascinating, and uh, um, I guess you know we you know when we when we started this podcast, it was it was more to, I guess, like Ari said, you know, bring information about the nonprofit field to the world. But I think uh, I think we've gained the most probably of anyone else, the two of us sitting here. Asking yeah, all that's questions. for sure. That's for sure. It's I would say you know to 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 relate to you guys what i do it's very simple it's two words tikkun olam all right we know what right. that means yeah and but that's what i do every day so tikkun olam and it sounds like you're doing that with your podcast we're trying our best trying trying our best we're all in it together Absolutely. each one of us rowing and, and if one of us is rowing and if you're rowing and i'm rowing we, as long as we're rowing together in the same direction the, the boat will go it's interesting you say that because i feel like if there's one positive message of the whole COVID situation it's that we are all in it together it's like the one thing in my lifetime in which every single person in the world was really sharing the burden it's a fascinating thing um i don't think that's accidental i believe that the the message of this entire age is that we're one humanity we're not arab and jew we're not black and white. We're actually one humanity. We are black. We are white. We are Arab. We are Jew. We are um, Muslim, Christian, whatever religion. But we are one humanity. That's the global message that we had. We were not getting, and I think COVID kind of knocked us upside the head to get that message. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, hopefully we, we don't forget once uh, this this passes. All right, Steve. Thank you so much again. Have a great day. Thank you. And uh, thank you guys. Take care. Be well. Stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Um, I, 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 I think it was um, one thing that stood out is he's super real. Yeah, he's a very, he's a very raw guy. He's definitely a very raw, you know, raw guy. I, listen, I Wait, love... I said real, not raw. No, but it was... No, it is raw. He's not, he's not sugarcoating anything. It's just, it's very much what, what drives him. I mean, he, yeah... Listen, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people are always saying when it comes to the solicitations of foundations and non for you know and non for profits asking funders and donors for money, it's always like, you know, do your best to to understand what their interests are. And here's a guy who has some very unique interests and is very forward and transparent about what those are. Which I think is cool. Yeah, also I think like sometimes organizations try to I guess somehow like give the impression that they do fit into the focus group of a foundation. And it's kind of like shoving like, you know, a, a square peg into a, you know, a, a round Sometimes, hole. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that there definitely are foundations out there that do focus on what your organization does focus on. And it's probably a better use of your time and energy to, to focus on those instead of, you know, trying to just be something you're not. Right. Not every billionaire is going to, uh, is going to give to your organization, obviously. Right. But at the same time, I, you know, I think it's a, a very good thing that, you know, he, you know, people probably have negative you know, responses when, you know, maybe they solicit a foundation or a billionaire and they don't get the response they want, but clearly he's got his priorities and clearly he's putting his money where his mouth is. That's obviously the most impressive part. Yeah. But for me, I'm just saying that like really sort of, uh, uh, I don't know what that word is, but it definitely made me like it, it, uh, what is that word? It didn't re, uh, whatever. Regurgitate? Oh my God. <clears throat> Re-energize? I think it definitely sort of, um, 
like reminded me of that fact that everybody has what they give to and that's okay. And I think conversations of understanding and identifying particular foundations and not just always trying to throw out the, you know, we could be better off by identifying some specific foundations that might be interested in your non-for-profit instead of sort of creating a deck or a presentation that's like, you know, just very wide um, and broad with goals and trying to pitch it to every foundation you, you know, you can get, you can get in touch with. I think, you know, to, to hear from the other side, from a guy who has a family foundation, how invested um, and how focused he is on the details of what drives and, and what the goals are of a non-for-profit I think sort of reminds me how important it is that a non-for-profit have that in mind. Know what your goals are, know what it is that you're trying to accomplish and what your strategies are, um, and really work to, you know, not just find anyone that has money to give money, but to identify particular individuals and foundations that can really gel with what it is you're trying to accomplish. I mean, I I think that's really what I kind of got most from this interview was that idea that, you know, maybe some of us believe, and it could be there are foundations that are like this, by the way, but maybe some of us believe that, you know, the foundations just have money. And if you're in the right place at the right time, then you kind of get the money or, you know, these billionaires set up these foundations and they really don't know what's going on. And maybe once every 12 months, they get sent a report of where the money is going. And it's not even a sign up. I mean, here's a guy whose foundation gives away a lot of money and he's very involved and he has a very unique set of, you know, priorities and interests. And it behooves the non-for-profits to understand that. I mean, I don't know. I, I, he said, like, we find you. Okay, well, how do you, you know, that could have been a question. Like, as a non-for-profit, how do you put yourselves out there so that foundations are calling you up and asking to give you money? That, we'll, we'll have to have another foundation. Yeah, on. we have to, have, yeah, to those we'll have to follow up on that one. Also, I think another thing is that, you know, every nonprofit thinks that, and rightfully so, they view themselves as the most important organization in the world because to them they are, and that's the way it should be. But when you're blessed with that kind of wealth, you can like change the world on a massive scale. So I think it actually is extremely important and essential that these foundations really do focus on making the, you know, the, the most important global impact that they can within, within their priorities, you know, and it's, 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 you can't, you can't fault that. I think think also you said something very important, which was that, you know, as a, as a non-for-profit, maybe you get a no or, you know, you get rejected from a particular foundation not to take it so hard. It's true. This adds another layer of understanding to receiving a no from a foundation. In other words, to understand that foundations are very much rooted in priorities and interests, that when you do get a no, you really can't take it personally. It, do- it doesn't mean that they don't believe in your organization. It's just not where they're, you know, where they feel um, that their giving resonates. Right. Okay, well, that was fun. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a unique interview for sure. I love how when we asked him how what the growth of the company was, he had to Google himself or the company, I guess. What's the what's the net worth of Camp McGill Midwest? Um, it's not just shy of eight billion dollars, but it might not be too far too far behind. I think it's behind. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. Just in, a little. Bit. In his words, just a little bit. Okay, we have an exciting update regarding the podcast that we want to share with you all. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, We uh, did get our our inboxes were flooded. That is not true. By people interested in applying for 
our social media marketing intern position. Slash producer. And we have zeroed in on one candidate who has definitely passed the first round of interviews. And um, we're, we're almost at that point where we're going to sign on a dotted line, but not yet. So we're hoping that probably by our next episode, maybe two more episodes, um, to get this person, you know, get them to agree to it first. Uh, and then and then introduce them to our listeners, and I know our listeners will will I know I know they'll be well received, and um, this person is very excited to get involved and help take the podcast to the next level and maybe the level after that. Um, but I don't want to divulge too many details because it may not happen. But can, can you tell, at least tell me, or I'm not even I'm not allowed to know. Um, no, I'm not going to tell you. I don't think you. I don't think you need to know. I think you just need to trust me that I would make the that decisions I make are only for the best of the podcast. Is this because I have a big mouth, or because no? Like but you think I wonder what they're. I wonder what they're going to say like about your writers. You know, what if they? What if they come in here like, okay, yo, it's really you got to cut your writers. They're no good. Can you stop? You know, going at my writers? writers. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I, I, I do believe that the first. I mean, I'm excited because I always felt like, I know this is weird, that like I have life lessons that I could be teaching an intern. You know what I mean? So like they're going to come in thinking that like they're- Like what? Gonna, like how to do a Rubik's Cube? Like I don't what know. are you talking about? I don't know. I just feel like they're going to come in. This is not like a get my coffee intern job. You but know, this can they is also, real. But can, we, can they also do that? I don't know. We can see when we hammer out the job description. But I feel like they're coming in to give us advice maybe. To like take over our social media, which is fine, mm -hmm. but I, I have advice for them also. So I just hope that they're ready for that. I think that's why people take intern jobs, you know, is not just to give but to get. Any advice for me? Um, yeah, you're matching your polo to your hat right now. Is that bad or is that I good? I just don't like the look. I don't think it's it was, like it wasn't intentional. I know, but it's like a, a very specific navy blue, and your hat is the exact same specific navy blue. Are you giving me, you think you're in position to give me fashion advice? No, it's just the first thing that came to my mind because okay. I'm looking at it. Okay. Speaking of advice, so we did get a question for from for Ask the Amateurs. So I don't, oh, you're going to surprise me with an Ask the Amateurs? It's fine. No, I mean, uh, they just sent it in, so we have to read it. Oh, I didn't see it though. Right? Okay, here's the question. I think this is a very relevant question to everyone out there. <clears throat> is it acceptable to take a power nap at work? Does it matter if you go to your car for a few minutes? How much worse is it to just go straight down on the arm or be caught dozing off while sitting upright? Oh, wow. You want to take it first or should I take it? Um, depends how much you want to put me on the spot, I guess. I'll take it. Okay, go. Okay, so I am absolutely pro power naps at work. I think it's very important at what time of the day you take them. I don't think you can take a power nap before 1.30 in the afternoon. Did you say before 1.30 in the afternoon? Yeah, because like if you're sleeping at like 11 o'clock in the morning, it's like, why, why are you so tired at this point? 1.30 in the afternoon is like pretty normal. You know, my schedule is going to be my morning coffee, power nap if needed early afternoon. But, you know, you, when you hit that time and like the, between the 1 to 3 where you start getting, do, uh, you know, start dozing off, 20 minutes on the arm, knock it out, wake up fresh, another coffee, good to go till 6 o'clock. Really? Yeah. Got to be honest, all this is a little foreign to me. I'm not much of an office napper. I don't think I've ever taken a nap at the office. You've never, like, fell asleep on your arm at your desk? Um, but mentioning that point, I mean, yeah, definitely do not just fall asleep at your chair because that looks like you – it should at least, like, be intentional. Like, I'm taking a nap because I want to – 
be more productive at work following the nap, and that's why I'm taking a nap. If you're just dozing off on your chair, that's a bad look. You don't want your boss seeing you. Oh, and it's better to just put your arm down on your desk and fall asleep like that? No, because I think you could at least spin it and say this is intentional and I'm trying to be more productive following the nap. I mean, some people sleep on their back, so they just lean back on their on their chair. I'm saying, imagine I walked in, or you walked into the office, and I was just laying back like this, sleeping. I mean, if your hands were on your keyboard, so then I'd be like, dude, you just fell asleep while typing an email. But maybe, I don't know, if you cross your arms and you like kind of lean back, you know, maybe put your... Okay, but okay, I yeah, this is all very foreign to me. Um, also, I think going to the car is risky. Yeah, so I, I was gonna say that also. So I was gonna say a couple things. Number one is going to the car is definitely probably a better quality nap. But if you get busted by like a coworker in the parking lot, like with the front with the driver's seat, like all full the full recline, yeah, or like in the, the back, back seat across the bench, yeah, with like a like a, a little blanket over you. And you're sleeping in the car. That's that's rough. You're asking for trouble. Um, so in some ways, the the nap at your desk or in your chair, whatever you want to call that, is a little bit more of like a you know it's it's a temper it's a power nap. That's you know what I'm saying. That's a power nap. If you have to go out to the car and and recline all the way back, that's a real nap. That's that's no longer a power nap. You're really asking for trouble. Um, I will say that there have been times I'm re- remembering now that I was very excited that we got that couch in the in the front of our office. I was going to say, what if you have a couch in the office? Yeah, that kind of so changes I've, the game. I've definitely, I mean, again, all right. Here's here was the sorry. This was the first thing I was going to say. The, the year the the days of a job being like nine to five, like on the clock, in most offices, long I think gone. is yeah. long gone. So because of that, I think the idea of a nap is fine because a lot of people are staying past five. Some people are staying coming in earlier than nine, later than nine. I think just in general, people's work schedules have changed a lot and there's a lot more flexibility around it. And luckily, if you have a good job and your manager is more results focused than they are clock focused. So I think taking a nap is fine. I will say that I have taken naps in the office, not at my desk, um, but I definitely have gone over to the couch and kicked my shoes off. It might have been like later hours of the day or early. It may be like no one was in the office and I just felt like I had to close my eyes for a few minutes. Um, and it's probably more when it's pre-camp season, which anyways, no one's working nine to five. We're working all hours of the day. So it definitely depends on what your working environment is. The last thing I'll say is this question is very different for people that would work in like a cluster of cubicles than it is for someone that works in an office with a door. I'm just going to throw that out there. Like a private office. Yeah, if you have if you have an office with a door and you're in you're in there on your own, you know. And you, I think the question is more for someone in a cubicle, and that's I guess why they would maybe propose going out to the car to get that privacy. Right, but if you're in a cluster of cubicles, likely you work in a pretty big office with a lot of employees, and the likelihood or the chance of you being seen fully reclining in a car with the engine running, air conditioning on, um, I mean, it could be there's a good likelihood. So I don't know. It's a toss-up. Well, you can always listen. take your car and like pull around to like, like oh, I'm going to get something, and like you park around the corner or something, different parking lot. What if someone said that it's like their daily habit to like go out to their car, put on the AC, kick back the driver's seat, and just fall asleep to 990 talk? Would you like? Would you endorse that? I would. I would endorse that. Oh, that's yeah, that's a totally different thing. That's totally okay. What are your thoughts? You know, I guess on the topic. What are your thoughts on like five-hour energy? You ever tried that? I've never done a five-hour energy. No, I'm a coffee guy. I'll have a coffee in the morning, coffee in the afternoon. In the summer, sometimes like in the real like worst parts of the summer, um, I'll have a couple of Red Bulls, but that's about it. Okay. Maybe we should try the five-hour energy. I wonder the if Five-hour energy? Should we try that? I have to imagine that stuff's not healthy. Oh, for sure not. It also probably tastes awful. 
No, I think it, they say it doesn't taste so bad. They got flavors and stuff. I feel like it's like medicine. No? I don't know. I did just notice that some of the flavored seltzers that have become very popular in the last couple of years I now been, have... I've been pounding those. Okay, so now they have a caffeinated version. Oh. Yeah. Good, good to know. Yeah. Uh, one more quick question for Ask the Amateurs. Papa Zesty. Papa Zesty is the name that they submitted under. Papa Zesty wants to know why I slice my driver. It's because I'm bad at golf. Okay? That's why. Well, I can... We, you want to get into the specifics of why people I mean, I know slice. why. It's because I, I, I hit it with an open club, but... I hit it with an open club. Well, there's two Going parts. Going back to what Steve Sarah said. There's two parts to the slice. What's the root of the issue? I'm bad at golf. I know, but there's... Moving on. Okay, but there's two parts to the slice. Can we move on? So no. It's not just about the club face being open or closed. Do you closed. want to play today? It's also the path to the ball. And no, I have to go to camp. I have a lot of work to do. Okay. Okay. That was good. Um, we also get a lot of feedback on this show about when we're right, but more so when we're wrong. Let's launch that segment right now. When we were right, when we were wrong? Yeah. When we were right, when, when we were right. When we were wrong. Okay, so I, I just, I don't have that many off the top of my head. I have one. Just off Can the I go? bat. Yeah, um, go. So first of all, I have a when we were right. Um, I mentioned that life cereal does not float, and people were very into that. It's a fact. Life cereal does not float. Yeah, we were right. That was a pretty good take. Um, and when we were wrong, um, going back to the trash one of mustache, of, of iconic American Jews. Oh, man. I already had Albert Einstein, who obviously was not American. I mean, he lived in America, but not American, so I think he would be disqualified. Did we detail that as a rule before we rolled out that trash more? I don't think it matters. You for sure thought he was American, and that's why you were wrong. Because, like, no one was American then. You know what I mean? In those years. Uh, my family's been in America for, like, six generations. Okay, whatever. All right, well, uh, when we were wrong, um, I uh, had a knock on Trick's cereal. And I had said that they had gone to a universal shape for all the different fruits. Oh, sorry. Yeah, tricks. See, they went to the, just the balls, the ball they, shape. They went to balls of from different the fruit, colors. From the fruit shape. From the fruit shape. And they've actually gone back. And I didn't know that. Um, and I actually gave my kids tricks cereal this morning. Um, so I was reminded of that. And a few listeners definitely uh, let me know that tricks had gone back to fruit shaped. And uh, hey, that's... I would kudos, just say kudos to Tricks for doing you know, that. We're saying that this is when we were wrong, but I think it's really that they were wrong, and they ultimately were correcting a gross injustice to the children of America who yeah, wanted tricks in that's the shape fine. of fruits. Because that's also like all the fun. Like now you're just if you don't have, not to talk about cereals too much, but if you, but if you don't have the tricks shapes, now you're just colored kicks. When we were right, when we were wrong, and what we missed. Yeah. Another a, a big miss I think was when we talked about cereals and we. Got into the conversation of cereals that hurt you. Scratchy mouth? Scratchy mouth. I literally probably had a dozen people reach out and say, I cannot believe you talked about scratchy cereals and didn't mention Captain Crunch. Ultimate scratchy. And you know what? That Captain was, that Crunchy. Was a huge, that was a huge miss. Captain Crunch is an incredibly, it's just, it's borderline dangerous. <laughs> I'm surprised like I don't eat Captain Crunch and like all of a sudden like 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 bleed out of my mouth. It's like really rough. A That's fair, a rough cereal. It's a fair point. Yeah. Just come with a warning. <laughs> On the box. This may destroy your palate. Um, but okay. that's, I mean, now that we have this, I mean, shout out to all the listeners. Feel free to uh, make sure to let us know what we got right, what we got wrong, and what we might have missed. And um, I can't imagine this is a segment we'll do every episode, but definitely something I think we could do every few episodes. But also shout out to the personalities. Oh, I had another I was one. Saying, shout out to the personalities that 
are looking to basically set us our mistakes. You know who you are. I, I had, we had another one. Um, it was it was yours, and someone got very upset by this. Okay. But the when we did, you might be a non for profit if, or yeah. mm-hmm. you're probably a non for profit. So you said that it, we, it was a take on you're probably a redneck, which you attributed to who? Larry the Cable Guy. And it really was. Probably Jeff Foxworthy. Jeff Foxworthy. Okay, but and someone was really worked up about that. Okay, so that I, person needs to chill out. They might need to. That's fine. I'm just saying I, I, if we did it, if we're going to do a, who, you know, we were right, we were wrong, we can't forget that. That guy was really worked up about that. Okay. Well, to all our, our, to all our homies out there, don't be, don't be so. Homies looking out for me. They the 